3: I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a market market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I've been wondering, friends, I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate you and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. If there's one word, one word. That defines this earnings season so far, it's NABAF. NABAF? Oh, come on, that's my totally made up acronym for not as bad as feared. While this session seems to date on the surface, Dow gaining 24 points as to be advancing 0.28%, NASDAQ rising 0.40%, underneath there were some bewildering moves that remind us the market doesn't always behave the way we'd expect it to. In particular, a bunch of stocks rallied today, even though they reported what looked like simply awful numbers. If you're befuddled, you've come to the right place. So how does this stock end up going higher in the wake of a seemingly ugly quarter? It's all about my buddy-pal friend, Naboth. Let me show you how it works. We're going to start with the railroads, okay? The railroads are the best example. All aboard! This morning, Union Pacific reported what, even by its own admission, was a disappointing quarter. (laughs) Their sales were weaker across every single cargo line. Energy down 20%. That premium, that includes the fabulous thermomodal business down 9%. Ag off 1%. Industrial down 1%. The cause of this weakness? Well, some cargoes have been troubled for a long time, like coal. But most of them are just plain economic weakness. Slower autos, weaker lumber, and perhaps most importantly, and troubling, the absence of agricultural exports to, yeah, what do I have to tell you? China. The market's immediate reaction? Horror! I saw this stock down four points in pre-market trading. I said, "Oh man, uh, we're gonna have a rough day today." Union Pacific is one of my absolute favorite companies, but I know that when you get such an ugly release, there is going to be some fallout, some selling, some obliteration. Sell, sell, sell. <laughs> And there was fallout, at least until the conference call started. Then the stock starts to rally for ultimately going positive. It, it went up more than two bucks before retreating, finished it uh, up 37 cents still. Think about it from down to up. Because even though so many volumes were weak, Union Pacific, it still made a ton of money. It's a testament to the fact that this is a changed enterprise. Thanks to tremendous expense control, uh, maximized use of locomotives, precision railroading, knowing where all the trains are, getting it in time, layoffs, they were able to generate some monster profits in spite of the weak sales. In the old days, it would have just been a hideous earnings shortfall. Union Pacific's just so much better run now. Plus, pricing held up just fine. That's a function, by the way, how competitive the railroads have become versus trucking, as well as some long-term contracts set during better times. As Lance Fritz, one of the best CEOs in the business, explained on the call, quote, We have been a little disappointed in the top line versus what we were hoping to see when we came into the year. As a result, we have adjusted headcount more aggressively to match that drop in volume, end quote. Hey, I remember when he was here talking about trying to find find workers. There were still workers. Well, now he's over here saying, listen, we're going to let some workers go. So even though Union Pacific's operating revenue was down 7%, guess what? Their operating income only declined by 2%. It's almost alchemy. I mean, that's how you get a not-as-bad feared quarter. I mean, that's how a railroad stock can rally off of a revenue shortfall. It's about now, Beth! We saw something similar last time from CSX, although their cargoes weren't as weak as Union Pacific's. But they did the same thing, controlling costs as part of their precision railroading techniques, which gave us another not-as-bad-as-feared quarter. Boy, they made a ton of money. What else? All right, last night, as I was leaving the office, step-by-step, inch-by-inch, I saw the not-so-hot report from United Rentals equipment rental company in America. And the stock, how about that Philadelphia accident? Or something, And then uh, the stock collapsed after hours trading. Down one, down two, down three, down four. I mean, it couldn't find a bottom. But then on the conference call, we heard how United Rentals was able to rationalize costs to handle the downturn. A downturn they expected, a downturn they anticipated. Again, this is a classic sink or swim cyclical business that seemed to implode during times of weakness in the old days. Yet on the call, we heard how the company presently cut spending, avoided being hit by the slowdown in oil and gas once the key market for them. United Rentals ended up bottoming down 5% last night, and then it came roaring back. This thing finished up 5% today! Because the quarter was... NABAF. Or how about Kramer fave Honeywell. This is one of the most consistent operators around. So I was momentarily concerned, if not frustrated, when I saw that Honeywell. Honeywell's revenue came in a little bit shy of Wall Street's expectations. And another time, that might have really hurt their profitability, causing the stock to get crushed. But now, it hardly seemed to matter. company earned $2.08 more uh, when the analysts were looking for $2.01. Uh, that mattered. Plus, they boosted their earnings forecast, even though they also took down the high end of the revenue forecast. Taking down a higher end of the revenue forecast used to crush a stock. Plenty of investors were worried that Honeywell might see some sort of fallout from the Boeing 737 Max woes because they do have a huge aerospace business. Nope! Instead, the aerospace business had 11% organic sales growth. No wonder the stock ended up rallying more than 2% today. And by the way, it's not done. You know what? The same thing happened to uh, United Health too, UNH. So many traders were terrified about the managed care company's earnings that its stock had gotten hammered to $220 going into the quarter. After rallying $18 the day it reported, UNH tacked on another six bucks today. Again, it's not done. These numbers were much better than feared, so uh, so good that they allowed buyers to stop worrying for a few minutes about Elizabeth Warren and just enjoy how well the company's doing. Then there's Johnson Johnson, which was supposed to be hurt by litigation risk. Instead, the company proclaimed it was ready for any and all verdicts, which, by the way, have recently been going into their own direction. Not that anybody's talking about it. it, it, it hints of an opioid settlement gave them another boost. Now, the stock's finally broken out of a ever since the stories about asbestos and their baby powder broke. You've seen some headlines about plaintiffs winning huge damages, lately, right? But do you know what they rarely hold up over a lot of scrutiny uh, uh, when they go to appellate courts? That and some fabulous blockbuster drugs and solid device numbers explain how J&J could have a NABF. The banks, Naboth, all over the place. How many times do we have to hear that the inverted yield curve is death sentence for the earth? those macro clowns? I mean, the macro people who specialize in that. I mean, can they shut up? Bunch of sunshine. Mount banks. Trust me. All right. How many times did the sirens of skepticism tell us to avoid being JP, uh, even touching JP Morgan, getting near JP Morgan, staying in the same room as JP Morgan while the Fed was cutting rates? I mean, truly, these knaves don't know jack. Didn't matter. Thanks to a robust consumer and fabulous expense control, we've seen NABF numbers from every one of these. Literally. I mean, Goldman Sachs. Boy, that had been such a. Did you catch that interview with Wolf? I mean, guys, throw a couple of ties. You're bankers and journalists. Okay, so you're in California, allowed to walk around naked. Anyway, I'll have more to say on Netflix later in the show. But the stock rallied today, even though the company suffered from churn, slower subscription growth in the United States, and a huge increase in spending on original content. So why wasn't the stock crap crushed? Because Netflix earned forty-seven per share, and it was only expecting for $1.03. This has never really been an earnings story, though. It's still a big, breathtaking beat. That's why the stock initially rallied as much as 22 bucks, close to only up 7 And once again, we got a not-as-bad-as-feared result. Of course, not every disappointment is a Naboth disappointment. Some are genuinely bad. Dark clouds with no meaningful silver lining. Look at IBM. If you can, hold just a second. I want to look at it. Where are those?
4: Merger.
3: Oh, they're the merger bot. Look at IBM. I mean, reported slightly better earnings, but weaker than expected sales. You can only look at it with these. These are special glasses that protect you from the actual numbers that IBM reported. Even though they recently bought Red Hat, a brilliant deal. It wasn't big enough to move the the needle and offset the decline in IBM's enormous legacy business. It's obvious what's happening here. The doom and gloom brigade controls the narrative. But the CEOs of most companies that have reported so far saw the pain coming and took decisive action to cushion the blow. They deployed new technology, made tough decisions, and they turned lemons into lemonade in almost every case, except for IBM. The bottom line, all these not-as-bad-as-feared quarters are good news for shareholders who haven't been shaken out by all the darn naysayers. More importantly, the reminder that execution matters. Perhaps with this industrial and enterprise uh, slowdown, it matters more than ever. Get used to the name, NABATH. And watch the guys on the day side pronounce it Nabaf. Steven in California. Steven. Professor, this is Steven Michael calling from San Diego, California. San Diego where we guys, have- I spoke to Adrian Gonzalez today. Yes, sir. He's a smart fella. What's up? Um, I had a question on GW Pharma Manufacturers. Sure enough. They're the only ones that
4: have the medication epidial which can stop seizures in babies and children. Right. They received approval to distribute their product a month ago in the
3: European Union, which gives them a brand new huge market, okay. but their stock has dropped from 100 100- Well, that's because there's been this ongoing raid on the company that the stuff doesn't work. I've not been able to determine that it doesn't. To me, it does. And more importantly, it's part of the vast cannabis uh, abyss. It doesn't seem today it bounced for a little cannabis. I got to tell you, I think GW Pharma is a good company with a good product, but the bears will not let go i got a mic in Florida, please, Mike.
1: Hey, Jim. Mike. I uh, see the broader market doing really well going up, but there's a pocket of uh, stocks. Uh, there's some growth stocks slash software companies. Okay. They're actually going the opposite direction. Right. The software um, is the service companies.
3: At- the highly valued yes. ones.
1: I'm going to call out one of them. Uh, You see, the CEO was on about three weeks ago, and and, uh, just wanted to get your thoughts on uh, Zscaler, down about 50%.
3: Oh, my. I mean, Zscaler, this is uh, one of Heather Gaines' favorite companies. She's integral when it comes to uh, to Zscaler and also to CrowdStrike buyers. And by the way, uh, Zscaler and CrowdStrike are in in a civil war to be able to get customers, and that's why it's been bad. I have to tell you, though, I think that I've been watching Palo Alto Network and that stock is going up, even though my charitable trust sold it, and it's really killing me. Alright, now there is a prevalent thesis in town. It's called Not As Bad as Feared, and it controlled today's act. It don't, it's really today's action. And that's good news for shareholders who didn't get distracted by the naysayers. NABAF! Alright, well man money tonight. What's going to happen to the <laughs> what's going to happen to the stock? market. If my old pal Larry Cuddo ends up being right, I'm giving you my take. Then, is it time to tune into Netflix? Really? I'll tell you if the company could be streaming profits in the future. And it's a biotech up more than 190% just year to date. And maybe you should put it on your radar. Kramerica, could it be worth adding Arrowhead Pharmaceuticals to your portfolio? I'm going to talk with the CEO. Stay with Nabath and stay with Kramer. What happens to the stock market if Larry Kudlow is right? Larry's the chief economic advisor to the president, and he has some bold things to say about world trade this morning on Squawk on the Street. So bold, you know what? They bear repeating. Now, full disclosure, Larry was my partner on Kudlow and Kramer from 2001 through 2005, which means I'm not exactly a neutral observer. He's a friend. But man, if you ever watched Kudlow and Kramer you'd know that we disagreed all the time. That was sort of the premise of the show. And it's not like I've been accepting everything he says uncritically since the trade war got going. Sometimes I think he's mistaken, and I never hesitate to say so. This morning, though, he made two points in Important points. First, even though we haven't seen anything positive coming out of China since the trade talks, well, uh, he, he told us not to give up on a deal. Larry said, and I quote, "People shouldn't be so pessimistic on China. Some good things could happen." End quote. He predicted that not only would China start buying agricultural products like they promised, they'll also change their policy on forcing American businesses into joint ventures in in exchange for access to their gigantic market. Now, look, historically, here's what's happened. The Chinese government has only let our companies own 49% of these joint ventures. Their homegrown partner got the majority stake. According to Larry, that's about to change. Our companies will be the ones who own more than 50%. That would be a major concession. Second, he said it's not too soon uh, to give up on the new trade deal, the NAFTA replacement, that President Trump's negotiated with Mexico and Canada. Now, this was something I took me by very much by surprise. Larry thinks there could be a deal in the offing to get this thing through Congress. Yes, even in the middle of the impeachment inquiry, Speaker Pelosi has been what he called accommodative about this trade deal. Listen to what Larry had to say. We may have disagreements on some matters, but I think USMCA has a lot of momentum. I think it will pass, and I think it will pass uh, before, before Thanksgiving. Before Thanksgiving? I mean, now, when I interviewed Nancy Pelosi a few weeks ago, I got the same impression. But then, then the Ukraine story broke. And you know what? She embraced impeachment. I figured that would kill the new trade deal. I mean, how are the House Democrats going to work with a president who they're actively trying to impeach? Seemed like impossible. Nope. According to Larry, things are on track. My view, look, I've known Larry for years, and he's always been an eternal optimist. I I, I know that's the case. I thought he might be blowing smoke. So I gave him a chance to dial the whole thing back, take back his comments by asking both points a second time. But he made it clear that his answers had been checked off by none other than Robert Lighthizer. He's the president's chief trade negotiator. Lighthizer and Kudlow are typically in opposite camps when it comes to the trade war. Lighthizer's what we call a hardliner, while Larry's been more of a free trader at heart. Now, normally when Larry says something positive, the hardliners shoot him down a few days ago. If they've already signed off on the statements, though, well, doesn't that make it a very different story? So, back to the original question. What happens to the stock market if Larry's right? And we get a new trade deal with Mexico and Canada before Thanksgiving. And we see concrete results from our negotiations with China. In that case, you know what? I think stocks will blast right through these levels and go much higher. Why? Because most of the weakness in the economy, and thus the market, stems from barriers to world trade. We could get a really positive domino effect if we pass the NAFTA replacement bill and then start getting even small concessions out of China. In that scenario, earnings will explode for the weakest part of the economy, the industrials. On top of that, long-term interest rates should go higher, which ends that nonsense about the inverted yield curve and means we no longer need to worry so much about what the Fed's going to do. Will Larry be right? I don't know but it's a real possibility. And after this morning, you need to start factoring it in before you start doing a lot of selling right into this market. So stay with Kramer. Take your
5: business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express.
3: Right, what in the world are we supposed to do with the stock of Netflix here? Yesterday afternoon, the streaming video Kingpin reported what many people are calling a better than feared quarter. I'm hearing that it's time to take Netflix out of the penalty box after it botched the last quarter in July. That this company has been redeemed, that they've done just enough to get themselves back on track. I don't buy it. After really digging into this quarter, I think it was soft. There's definitely not enough in here to take Netflix out of the penalty box. That would be a mistake. If you stole it, I recommend taking advantage of today's bounce to ring the register. I'm going to tell you why. By the way, I like this company for a long time. First, you've got to understand what Netflix is up against. Because when you look at these numbers in context, I think they're pretty discouraging. You did a vacuum. It was an okay quarter. But we don't live in a vacuum. We live in a world where Netflix is facing an onslaught of competition as everybody and their mother rushes to launch their own streaming service. I think like I should have one of my ser- service. I mean, I'm not kidding. That's how many are coming. Well, some of these are already out. The heaviest hitters haven't even launched yet. Apple's rolling out its streaming video platform in two weeks. People are Making a little joke that they don't have enough content. they got billions of dollars. They want content, they can get it. Disney Plus is coming out a little less than a month. They're both going to have vast libraries of content, especially Disney. And they're both going to be a lot cheaper than Netflix. Five bucks, seven bucks a month, respectively. That's just the tip of the iceberg. WarnerMedia is coming. In other words, Netflix just reported their last quarter pre-Apple TV Plus and Disney Plus. uh, Going forward. The big question is whether or not Netflix can hold off these new rivals. And what we saw last night does not inspire a ton of confidence for me. I Look, I, you know what? I used the stock of Roku to measure new competitors, and it went bonkers today. Sure sign that more streaming services are coming on strong, and this is not a case where the more is the merrier. Even before the Disney-Apple tag team enters the ring, this company already faces some real headwinds. Netflix was a $385 stock in July. $385, people! Then they reported a botched quarter, and the darn thing spent months selling off, ultimately bottoming at $252 late last month. At those levels, it started feeling too cheap to ignore, which is why it rebounded to $286 as of yesterday's close. But man, oh man, the bears had a field day with that last quarter. After pushing through a price increase earlier this year, the company's subscriber growth tanked. Remember, unlike most stocks, Netflix doesn't typically trade based on sales or earnings. It trades on new signups. That's the metric. So even though they reported decent earnings beat last night, all anyone really cared about were the anemic subscriber numbers. Netflix added 2.7 million paid uh, members worldwide. Wall Street was looking for 5 million. That was awful. The combination of a major shortfall overseas and domestic subscriptions that actually declined for the first time since the company decoupled the streaming service from the old DVD rental service in 2011. The source of the weakness, management told us, We don't believe competition was a factor since there wasn't a material change in the cogn- competitive landscape during Q2, end quote. Plus, the new competitors were only popping up in certain regions, but Netflix's subscriber shortfall was worldwide. The culprit. Management blamed the price increases and the fact that, I quote, Q2's content slate drove less growth in paid net ads than we anticipated, end quote. Although they also noted that they did huge numbers in the previous quarter, so there may have been a pull-forward effect. In July, Netflix sounded confident about their ability to get things on track as long as they focused on the fundamentals. You know, they kind of were pretty bullish here. They told us that the third quarter started with the insanely popular third season of Stranger Things, and the first two weeks were strong. Two weeks. At the time, the company told us to expect 7 million new paid subscribers worldwide in the coming quarter, 6.2 million in the the rest of the world, 800,000 here in the U.S. Remember those numbers. Now, the stock still got obliterated in July, and it kept falling until a month ago when it finally bounced off its lows. But that's the context going into last night. There was a huge subscriber shortfall last quarter. Management promised that they'd be able to get things on track. So did they? They? Well, look, if you only looked at the stock action today, with the stock ultimately rallying seven bucks, but it was up, upsize 22 bucks at one point, you might think that Netflix actually did deliver. And in some ways, they did. company posted a gigantic earnings beat. Earnings. They made $1.47. Street's looking for a three. They're making a fortune thanks to those price hikes. But what about the subscriber numbers? Again, remember I told you that's the real metric? Those numbers were a lot more mixed. While international signups expected uh, were a bit better than expected, coming in at 6.3 million, the domestic numbers, wow, they stunk. Just 517,000 when management was forecasting 800,000. I know, 517,000 is a big number, but not when you're expecting 800. All told, they didn't quite hit the 7 million figure they were guiding for, even if they came a lot closer than last time. Still, uh, this was their most accurate forecast in recent history. What's holding back the U.S. business? Netflix explained an uptick in churn. Quote, since our U.S. price increase earlier this year, retention has not yet fully returned on a sustained basis to pre-price change levels, which has led to slower U.S. membership growth. End quote. Translation, they're losing more customers than they used to. And that's weighing on the numbers. As Barclays pointed out, a small increase in churn like this can translate into some real pain. We're talking 2 million fewer net subscriber additions annually at this pace. That's a lot! Now, some of the analysts are more critical. Macquarie actually downgraded this stock from buy to neutral in these numbers. They think the U.S. business has reached a point of saturation, another key word, where it's going to have a much harder time growing, especially with Disney Plus and Apple TV Plus coming next month. Even if they don't do much damage to the subscriber base, Macquarie's betting they'll make it much harder for Netflix to keep raising prices That's something I agree with. I didn't always. I used to think they could take it up a lot, but not with all these competitors. Plus, with so many streaming services that are competing for content itself, the cost of quality programming keeps rising. This is something the bears been warning about for ages, but it never really mattered while Netflix was a turbocharged growth stock that was consistently adding massive numbers of new subscribers. Now it's not. The other worry, even though Netflix has become quite profitable, it's still got negative cash flow. Their free cash flow came in at a negative $551 million, and they're expecting $3.5 billion of cash burn for the full year. Well, that's an improvement, and these numbers should slowly get better over time. In the interim, Netflix told us that they'll keep selling high-yield bonds to fund their investments in growing the business. Suboptimal. For next quarter, management's forecasting 7.6 million new signups, 600,000 here, 7 million in the rest of the world. That's much weaker than expected. The analysts were uh, just hoping for 9.5 million, not that long ago. Ouch. On top of that, their sales and earnings forecasts were also pretty light. Put it all together, and I think Netflix has reached a point of saturation domestically. Even with Stranger Things 3, they couldn't hit the forecast. Worse, the companies had two subscriber shortfalls in a row. And that's before the new competition from Disney and Apple even hits. What could save them? Netflix needs to start posting some extraordinary subscriber growth overseas. They may do it. They have a lot of great, uh, a lot of great productions overseas, so it can happen. They're understanding of what people want region by region. It is unparalleled. They do a lot of R&D about this, but they need to do better than they're doing. Why not give Netflix more credit for its incredible profitability? Well, because this is a subscriber growth story. And if you value the stock on earnings, well, it, it, it's at 53 times. So that's not the way to look at it. The bottom line, today Netflix reported a quarter that was in many ways better than feared, as I said at the top of the show. But that's all it was. I wouldn't short Netflix here too risky. But until we see how they handle Disney and Apple, I absolutely wouldn't want you to own it either. Andrew in Illinois, Andrew. Hello, Jim. This is Andrea, Andrew's mom. We watch every
0: day and we really enjoy your show.
3: Hi, Kramer.
5: My name is Andrew, and I'm eight years old, and I, this is my second time calling you, and my question
3: is, should I buy some more Disney or sell it? Why would you sell it there, Andrew? you got your whole life ahead of you. You're eight years old. Congratulations. And Andrew's mom, fantastic, too. Disney is a buy, ah. and it's one of the great long-term stories. My executive producer just got back from Disney World, and you know what? Not bad. Not bad. She had a great time. Her daughter wanted to be like a Jedi warrior instead of princess uh, whatever. All right, let's go to Mark in New York, please. Mark. Yes, hi. Booyah, Jim. It's Booyah. always a pleasure to be on the show, and thank you for taking my call. Of course. Okay, just a quick comment. Uh, it's really great to hear young people calling in the show lately, because the earlier they start learning about money, the better. Because most of us learn initially by losing it first. So I'd like to thank everyone on CNBC, and I've been watching your show since day one. So yes, very much for the education. Fantastic. Okay, and uh, the symbol I have tonight is IPG. It's Interpublic Group of Companies. Haven't heard much about it. It has a dividend of four and a half percent, a forward PE of eleven. So, Jim, what I want to ask you is, is it a diamond in the rough or a dud? No, I don't don't want to. The the advertising stocks are just way too hard. We're not going to. Look, they're cheap. The stock's cheap. But it's just too hard. And, Mark, you've been watching the show since it began. You know I don't like it hard. It's much better to find stocks that I think have the tailwinds. And I don't see a lot of tailwinds in that business. Taylor in North Carolina. Taylor. Booyah, Jim. Booyah.
1: Uh, I'm a 22-year-old investor. I've been watching a show with my dad since I was 15 years old. Um, I was looking for some insight on the company Slack for an investor with a long-term time, uh, time horizon.
3: Well, I'll tell you, uh, there's some really interesting data on the Goldman Sachs Conference call which talks about what's known as a direct listing, and how direct listings have really been unable to be able to find that subs- that that really great shareholder base. And that's what's happened to Slack. It does not have, because it's so, it. It did the wrong kind. Listen, companies that are thinking about doing that, don't do it. We can't figure out what the price discovery is, what it really is worth. So Slack, I don't know, it seems like it's bottom here, but I don't have a case to be made for it. By the way, also, now that uh, Schwab is doing partial stocks, uh, this is a reminder, if the companies would only split their stock, they'd have a lot more people like it. Sure, Netflix quarter wasn't a total bust, as I said during this piece, but also at the top. But you know what? It wasn't a total blockbuster either. I wouldn't short it, but I wouldn't own What's more made money at? It's a company up more than 350% over the past three years, and you may never even have heard of it, although some of our viewers have. I'm sitting down with the CEO of Arrowhead to see if it continues to rise ahead of tomorrow's big analyst meeting. Then wondering if your portfolio has what it takes this earnings season? I'll be the judge of that when we play MI, reverse 5, and what it calls rabbit rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. There are certain stocks we get asked about all the time, especially speculative biotech names. When you really nail one of these, wow, the gains can be enormous, which is why callers so often get excited about them. Take Arrowhead Pharmaceuticals. This is a development stage gene therapy company. Arrowhead is trying to treat rare genetic disorders by effectively silencing, and that's the key term, silencing the genes that cause them using what's known as RNA interference technology. Over the past two years, this stock has rallied from just 104 bucks. to just over $36. That's an 800% gain. No wonder we're always getting called about it. I gave him my blessing to speculate on this one as part of my homework piece a little over a month ago. Since so it then, it's up another 20%. I like that Arrowhead has a bunch of positive catalysts coming, including a Big R&D Day in New York City right here that takes place tomorrow. And before they talk to the professionals, they're visiting us to share their story with you, the home gamers. So let's check in with Christopher Anzalone. He's the president and CEO of Arrowhead Pharmaceuticals. Learn more about his company and its prospects. Mr. Anzalone, welcome to Mad Money. Good to see you, sir. Hey, Have Good a seat. Good to see you. Well, our viewers are the smartest on TV because they see that you have a lot of prospects. And more important, that you have great partners, big, deep, pocketed partners that can do terrific things, including pay you uh, some giant milestone fees. Can you walk through what those are and what, why they're excited about silencing genes and maybe some new things that are going to happen that you'll reveal tomorrow?
1: Sure. Thanks, Jim. So, uh, look, we have a partnership with the J&J um, for our hepatitis B drug, as well as three new targets they will bring to us that we will uh, build new drugs around. We also have a partnership with Amgen for a cardiovascular drug that we developed, and they are developing that in the clinic, and they will commercialize that. Uh, I think that that what they saw was a really powerful technology that, as you say, can silence genes that cause disease. Um, and it, it, it is a hyper-specific process whereby we can we can silence a single gene uh, and it is now a validated technology so we know it works we know that we can do it in a well tolerated manner uh, and to the extent that we choose the right genes, uh, we could have a, a, a substantial effect on people's lives.
3: Now, uh, J&J, your deal there is humongous. What's 250 million, but three, what, more than three billion in milestone payments over time? How does that work so our
1: viewers know what to see? Sure, so, so the deal is this. Is, is this. Um, it is for our hepatitis B drug that they have now moved into a phase two study, uh, and it is also for three new targets they will bring to us, and we, we view that as found value. Uh, these are targets. These are gene targets they will bring to us, and we, and we will develop uh, drugs around them. They don't come from our pipeline. And so as, as we push those, or as they push those drugs through the clinic and into commercialization, they will pay us milestone payments, and then after commercialization, they will pay us royalties. How about the Amgen affiliation? Uh, <coughs> very similar. Um, okay. um, that's for, for a drug against cardiovascular disease. Again, this is a drug that we developed, uh, and they came in and, and, and saw that it, it, should, it should fit well with their portfolio. Uh, and they will uh, bring it to the clinic and then commercialize it. Okay, so silencing a gene, can you silence more than one gene? So that's an interesting question. Uh, so, so the short answer until, until today really was was not really. Um, uh, RNA interference, uh, as you say, is a, is a method of silencing a gene um, and it can be used now therapeutically to treat diseases. Uh, we viewed two big possibilities with the, with the technology that we wanted to, to, uh, to advance. One was bringing RNA interference outside the liver. The, the field has gotten pretty good at silencing genes within the liver. And you know what? There are a lot of important medicines that can be developed uh, um, by silencing liver-derived or liver-expressed genes. But also, to your point, uh, we viewed a big possibility uh, of, of silencing more than one gene. And tomorrow we'll talk about that a bit, but we have advanced that. And so now we can do two things that I think that are quite important. A, we can bring RNAi interference to new organ systems. By the end of this year, we'll have our first drug um, uh, in the clinic um, that will be uh, targeting solid tumors. The middle of next year will be in the lungs for cystic fibrosis. The end of the year will be in, in muscle cells. Uh, we'll talk about that a bit, and also we'll talk about the ability now to silence more than one gene. And that opens up a whole host of new diseases, I think.
3: Now, I, I know from, uh, from Vertex, cystic fibrosis really hard and horrible disease. So how do you know that it might work? I mean, how do you pick these things? Because these are complex
1: diseases, and that's a disease that has been so difficult to be yeah, you know, it's a great question. It's a broader question, and I will tell you why. Um, uh, you know, biopharma is full of upside. You know, we all we all can can look at diseases that that are that are that are horrible, and there's a lot of value to be created if you can solve those diseases. But you know, what you really got to be focused on is risk mitigation because we bathe in risk, and to the extent that you can mitigate that risk, uh, you can you can. Uh, Uh, you know really build a more stable company and what we do is we focus really only on validated targets and what i mean by that is these are these are our proteins these are gene targets that we know if you turn that off a good thing will happen right and so we know that for cystic fibrosis for the gene we're going after it it is it is uh, it's called epithelial sodium channel we know that that if that is turned off or turned down in cystic fibrosis patients good things will happen and so, so when we look at our, at our, at, our, at, our at our risk profile, you've got two risks, or two, two primary risks, one. Uh, one is the target risk, and we, right. can, we can really walk away from that by focusing only on validated targets. The second is, of course, technology risk. Can you turn something off? And I think we've shown now... In what over 110 people that we can do that, uh, and so we're excited about the technology. We're excited about where we can take it next. 110 people? really. So you've got. I mean, this isn't mice. These are people. It's not mice. We, we've been in 110 people, 160 some doses. Uh, we haven't seen any uh, called uh, so-called SAEs right. or serious adverse events, um, uh, and we've been able to consistently turn down these target genes. It's a really exciting time. Well, that's to be sensational. In our well, congratulations. Thank you. Can't wait to hear, uh, get the big deck tomorrow, I'm sure, right? That we will be able to see it because you've got your big
3: analyst day. That's Chris Franzaloni, President and CEO of Arrowhead Pharmaceuticals. Thank you to our viewers for bringing this to our attention. That money's back after the break. It is- and then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? skate the lightning round comes around. I want to start with Daniel in New York. Daniel Hi, how are you, Framer? Not bad, how about you? Good, I wanna know about Smile Direct Club. Is it a winner or is it a loser? Daniel, my brother, I think the market has determined that it is a. It should never have come public in the first place. Let's go to Neil in Ohio. Neil! Dr. Kramer, a big booboobooboobia from the Buckeye stage. We love the Buckeye's, they come on a lot. We're trying to figure out when we can get there to be able to do a show. How can I help? Yes. I was on the Action Alerts call last, uh, yesterday afternoon and wanted to say thank you for the sound advice you give to us club members. Oh, you're terrific. That's the ActionAlertsPlus.com club, which I've been running for like 18 years now. And finally, people are belonging. What's going on? All right. Let's go to work. My question is on Zebra Technologies. We're about 13% off high. How do you like it before the quarter, and do you think this Zebra has room to run? I have to tell you that I was surprised that the one line of Honeywell that is similar to Zebra was once again not great, and Zebra keeps doing it great. And I have got to tell you, I am a, uh, I'm a believer. I'm a believer. I think that it's going to be able to demonstrate more growth than most people think, and I say buy Zebra Technologies. Let's have one again. They're always a delight. They're a delight. You know, I met them at the Super Bowl. That's where I first saw them. Uh, let's go to Sally in New York. Sally. yeah,
4: Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. I just want to get your quick uh, opinion about the Boston Beer Company. You know, I like
3: it. I did that big piece on Spike Seltzer. I mean, Spike Seltzer. I mean, it tastes great, less filling or whatever. This thing is the young people love this thing. And I'm in touch with them. I'm in touch with young people. Alright, let's go to Sybil in Louisiana. Sybil. Yes. Sybil. Yes, sir. Go ahead, you're thank up, you Sybil. So,
4: thank you so much for taking my call, Mr. Kramer. Okay. Well, I'd like your opinion on Cedar
3: Fair. Cedar Fair symbol is fun, and that's what you have if you own the stock. It's been a winner. And that. paid hey, wrong one. And that, ladies and conclusion of the Lightning
4: Round! The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade.
3: That bath is back, baby. And boy, is it rocking the market. But how do you make sure these not as bad as feared quarters don't burn you? With post earnings reactions that are just downright puzzling, you're, you're reminded every single day now that diversification may be the only way to handle the pain the and the gain. And that is why we play at I diversified this way. You give me, uh, you call me, you give me your top five holdings. I tell you if your portfolio is diversified enough, maybe you got to mix it up a little. People love this segment. So we keep doing it. This is my 18th year. There you go. All right. First, we have a tweet. Hey, uh, congratulations to the guy who said that it's, uh, I was in Pueblo this weekend. First, we have a tweet from at Jeff underscore Hill 99, who says, at midmoney on CBC, FedEx, PNC, CVS, Etsy, and Splunk. Pretty sure I'm diversified, but I want to play Am I Diversified Today? Okay. Okay. Okay, we've got a, I'm going to call it an online retailer. We've got a company that mines data. We've got one of my absolute favorites as I sold club members of ActionWordsPlus.com on my call yesterday, CVS. We got a bank that had a good number, and we got FedEx, which had a series of bad numbers, but we have starting to get a move in the transports. We have a transport, we have an internet retailer, we have got a Healthcare company, a data miner, and a bank. You are right, sir, underscore sir. I am bullish on what you own. Let's go to Anne in Indiana. Anne Jim, thanks for taking my call. Of course.
0: You're gonna be horrified at what I'm about to tell you. My five stocks are NVIDIA, Marvell, Amazon, JP Morgan, and Abbott.
3: Well, here we go. These are all club member stocks. And I thank you for being a member of ActualersPlus.com club. All right, JP Morgan, best bank. I never thought I'd say that when I worked at Goldman, but it's true. Phenomenal quarter Jamie Dimon. He ought to come on a special Veterans Day show. The more I think about it, the more I realize that that's how he should approach us at CNBC. Uh, Abbott Labs, looked like a worse than expected quarter. It turned out to be not as bad as fear, drug company, but really is devices. NVIDIA, the name of my dog, and also happens to be a super chip company, which is really graphic design that has artificial inference. Uh, Amazon, you know, King, okay, and Marvell, which is the best 5G play. we got a 5G play, we got a great bank, we've got the king of retail and Amazon Web Services too, the best device company, and yes, the best technology chip company, and I'm going to bless it, even though the purists would say you can't have Marvell and NVIDIA. This is 5G, and this is GPU. Okay? How's that? Hey, why don't we go to Lawrence in Texas? Lawrence! Hey, Jim, how are you? I am good. How about you, Lawrence? I'm doing well, thank you. Hey, I'm trying to find out if I'm diversified. Okay. I have Philip Morris, McDonald's. Apple,
2: Pfizer, and Starbucks.
3: Ooh. I find this senior growth portfolio to be very intriguing. Yes, we got Philip Morris. I'm not really a big fan of tobacco. Someone said that I was a shill for tobacco on Twitter. That person is a professional chowderhead. Okay, so we got tobacco. We've got, yes, Apple, own it, don't trade it. Starbucks, some people worried about the Hong Kong issues. Will you give me a break? Uh, McDonald's and drug company Pfizer. I am going to have to make a choice here. And I'm going to say that you should be in Starbucks at 85, 86. We're going to add uh, a diversified industrial, which is Honeywell. What a quarter today. Apple technology, Pfizer drug. I do prefer Merck, by the way. And then Philip Morris. Well, I don't want to say what they do because I've been so mean to big tobacco that I'm a shill. That person... Is taking a permanent intellectual vacation and is in my Twitter file. Let's go to Andy in Kansas. Andy,
1: yo, Jim, yo. thanks. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Same. Love your show and fly, Eagles fly.
3: Well, you know what? We're going down to Dallas this Sunday night, and we either fly or we. Well, never mind. Let's let's go.
1: Yeah, my five stocks are Jones Lang LaSalle, Starbucks, Sirius XM, uh, Comcast and PayPal.
3: Hmm. Curious. Okay, Uh, Jones Lab. Wow, no one owns that stock. That's the first time for us. Let me take a look at how that's doing. I like that stock. I like CBRE. I like CBRE more than them. But you know what? Okay, 11 times earnings. Real estate, Starbucks, we covered that one. That's uh, obviously... Uh, what do you even call it? Beverage and restaurant? Seriously, except I was on with John Hanson, my buddy, this morning on uh, Fantasy Radio. That's radio. PayPal is payments. And Comcast is uh, entertainment. Entertainment uh, serious. Let's let's change this one out as the music plays and let's put it in a healthcare company. Let's do that. Abbott Labs, they reported it was great. And then we got, you know, we got, I don't know, what do you call it? Uh, fast payments, uh, entertainment, and real estate. It'll work. I just wish that I had more time to parse that portfolio, make that change, put in Abbott, and I will be happy. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is our special edition of Am I Diversified? Why do the stocks of companies with bad earnings go up? Why, it's NABATH! I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow!